Well, good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here, and it is good to see you this morning as uh, we gather for worship and as we sing to our God. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. We're glad that you're with us. Uh, we're glad that you are here. Um, and I invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chair in front of you. And uh, I say this periodically. If you don't have a Bible um, and you would like one, please take that one in the chair. Um, just take it with you. We believe that uh, God's word is the most important word for us. And so it's important that we have it. And so if you don't have one, please just take it. You don't have to say anything. We're happy for you to have it. Uh, but this morning in God's word, we'll be looking at Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. And it can be found on page 807 of that Bible in the chair in front of you. So the second half of uh, Matthew 1 is the second sermon in our series, four series, four sermon series on uh, during this Advent season. So we've looked at Matthew 1 last week, we'll look at Matthew 1 today, and then the next two weeks we'll split up Matthew 2. And as we're going through these uh, birth narrative, this birth narrative of Jesus, um, we often see, not just in this one, but also in Luke's narrative, that the story is told through the lens of various characters, various people, right? There's Mary and the shepherds. Next week, we'll see the wise men. This morning, we focus our attention on Joseph, that what we hear about Jesus's coming is told to us because of Joseph's engagement with the angel. The angel tells him about who Jesus is and about what's occurring to Mary and how he's supposed to respond. And, and we too see not just what Joseph is to do and believe, but what we're to do and believe. That what God has done is made evident in this passage and what our response is to be. It is just like Joseph's, that we're to respond with obedience. And so let's go ahead and read Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will be born a son. She will bear, excuse me, <laughs> she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for this portion of it, and we ask that as we now examine it, as we consider it, as we read it and pray over it, that you would lead us in the way that we are to go. Father, I need your help. We all do. And so we ask that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to please you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's kind of a little warm up here, isn't it? 
yeah, I'm, I'm not making a statement, okay, by taking off my coat, other than it's hot. <laughs> um, so, um, but anyway, so uh, I remember a number of years ago a particular lunch that I had uh, with a friend of mine. Uh, that might seem odd to some of you because many of us have lunches a lot, and after a while they start blurring together. And so to remember one lunch might seem strange, especially a lunch that took place, I don't know, maybe five or six or even seven years ago. But I remember this particular lunch not because of what was said, but because of who was there. You see, my friend and I, we had been trying to get together for lunch for some time, and finally it worked out, and so he invited me to eat lunch with him at his club, at his athletic club. And so I showed up. I'd never been there before. We walked past the really pretty uh, dining room with the fine china, and we sat in this little grill, this little restaurant that overlooked the indoor tennis courts of this athletic club. And the waitress came and took our order, and I handed back her menu, the menu, and, and over my friend's shoulder, I noticed something. I didn't just notice something, I noticed someone. And I couldn't tell for sure, but I thought that it, it was who I thought it was, this older man, this gentleman walking in with a younger man about my age, you know, this younger, you see what I did there, this younger man. And um, anyway, they came and they sat at this table. And, and I noticed it, and, and so did the people around us noticed it, because I saw them all looking at this older man. And people started to whisper, and even some people pointed, and all eyes were fixed on him. And so I leaned over to my friend, and I said, is that who I think it is? He said, it is. And a big smile went across my face. He said, it is. In fact, he comes here every single week on Friday at this time and sits at that table for lunch. And I knew if we sat at this table and you in that seat, you would have a clear view to him when he walked in. A big smile goes across my face because right there, a few tables away, was Stan the Man Usual. Now, if you don't know anything about baseball, Stan the Man might not mean much to you. But Stan the Man Usual is one of the greatest baseball players to have ever played the game. And he is easily, easily the greatest player to ever play for the Cardinals. And since that's the greatest team ever, you know that he's an important player. But he truly was one of the greats. He was a first ballot Hall of Famer and a three-time MVP award winner and a three-time World Series champion. He played in 24 All-Star games, which is tied for the record. And in 2011, he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And if you've been in my office and looked at my bookshelves, you've seen his bobblehead. <laughs> and there he was, just a few tables away, stand the man usual. It took everything in me not to be that fan, you know, the fan who goes over and interrupts the lunch and interrupts the conversation and asks for an autograph. It took everything in me, and I have to tell you, I, I don't remember anything my friend said from that point on. I wanted to ask him, what was it like to play in front of thousands of people? What was it like when you were elected to the Hall of Fame? How did it feel when they erected an enormous statue of you outside of Bush Stadium? And what did you think when the commissioner of baseball called you baseball's perfect warrior, baseball's perfect knight? I had all these questions I wanted to ask because I was in awe. I was amazed at this man. I remember seeing him, but you know what else I remember from that day? And that younger man who was sitting with him? I remember that that man sitting with him sat there and ate his lunch, ordered his food and drank his water, and he didn't say a single word. 
The entire lunch went by in complete and utter silence. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, this is one of the greatest baseball players in the history of the world, and you just sit there and you say nothing? Like, how can you not be amazed? How can you not wonder? How can you not be in awe of who it is that you are eating lunch with? I will trade you, my lunch partner. (laughs) But no, there was no awe. There was no wonder. There was no amazement. Well, it turns out, I found out later, that this young man who was sitting with him was a family member. He was a nephew of some sort. And that they ate together every single week in that same spot. And this had become normal. That Stan, to this young man, wasn't the man. He was just Stan. Or Uncle Stan. There was no wonder. There was no awe. It was just familiar. And let me just say, before we move on, that that there is beauty in the familiar. Like, there is wonderment in the normal. But I think sometimes... So easily, I, and and probably many of you, we we very easily allow the familiar to numb us to the amazing. That we become familiar with something, we become accustomed to it, and and we lose lose all the wonder. It no longer is awe-inspiring. And I don't know if that's what was happening on that day with Stan and his nephew. I don't know if that's what was occurring, but I do know that it can occur in my heart. I mean, even when I come across portions of Scripture, like the the passage we just read this morning. I mean, if you're like me, you've read this, this passage countless times, right? Every Christmas we read over it again and again. Even if you're not from the church, even if you haven't grown up in the church and you haven't read your Bible in years, you know the story of Jesus' coming, of wise men and angels and stars and shepherds, of a young girl and no room at the inn. And it's easy to allow the familiar to numb us to what is amazing. And friends, what occurs in this passage, what is told by the angel, is nothing short of amazing. And so as we come to this passage, I I want to encourage us to not allow the familiar to become passe, but instead let us wonder and be amazed again at what God has done. Let us be in awe of what God has done, and what has he done? Well, he's come near. Look at verse 23. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God revealed himself to his people. He showed up, right? But he often showed up in power, in lightning, and in thunder, and in fire, and on mountaintops, and out of burning bushes, right? This is how he revealed himself. But now, in Jesus God would take on flesh. He would would be touched. Like in the Old Testament, you remember, God would not show his face to his people because he was so holy, it would kill them. But now Christ would come with with a face, with a nose, with eyes, with with skin to touch and to be held, and he could be heard with our own ears. He came near to us. Think about how incredible that is. The one in whom and by whom and for whom all things were created. The creator of the universe, the one who hung the stars in the sky and put the birds in the air and the fish in the sea. This one took on flesh. 
that the creator entered into his creation as a baby. Friends, no matter how familiar you are with this account, you have to acknowledge that Jesus' incarnation, and that's the theological term we use to describe Jesus coming in the flesh and living amongst his people, his incarnation, that his incarnation is nothing short of remarkable. It is amazing. It is remarkable that God would come near to us. But by the way he comes, it's also just as amazing. Because Jesus comes near to us through a miracle. That's what God does. God draws near by means of a miracle. Comes through a virgin conception. Now let's think about this through the lens of Joseph. Let's think about this from his perspective. We don't know much about Joseph. In fact, he he becomes a minor character after Jesus' birth. We don't know a lot about him. We know he was a carpenter, and we know he was betrothed to Mary, so he was engaged to be married. And in this time, an engagement to be betrothed to someone was was of, of greater significance than simply our engagements today. To break off an engagement then would have required a certificate of divorce. And so he's engaged to this young girl, Mary, and during the engagement, it becomes apparent that she's pregnant, but not by Joseph. In fact, the passage makes it very clear. It wants us to understand that this is not Joseph's baby. We read that before they came together, she was found to be with child. So, So before they consummated the marriage, before there was a sexual union between Joseph and Mary, she was pregnant. So from Joseph's perspective, what has she done? She's cheated on him. She's been with another man. Now, now let's just think about what this conversation would have looked like between Joseph and Mary. Now, we don't know if it happened. We can surmise that it probably did, though, right? And we know from Luke's account that Mary knew exactly what was happening, right? Because an angel came and appeared to her and told her what was going to happen. And so surely Mary would have said to Joseph, right? No, no, I've been faithful, I didn't cheat on you. There's no other man. An angel appeared to me, Joseph. I'm, I'm, I'm conceived by the Holy Spirit. I mean, you could imagine that, right? I mean, if, if someone showed up and said those sorts of things to you, what would you think? <laughs> Man, this person is crazy, right? That, I mean, that, there'd be a whole other th- lot of things we would want to say, but that's at least what we would say, right? This play- person is crazy. An angel appeared, and you're conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit? You know, maybe she was pleading with him. Believe me. Trust me. Have faith. We don't know what she said, but it would have sounded crazy to Joseph because virgins don't get pregnant. And, and whether they had this conversation or not, we know that Joseph isn't buying it because in verse 20, we're told he resolved to dis- divorce her quietly. Now listen, before we go on, let me just take a pause and just acknowledge that what Joseph is doing here is incredibly honorable. That the way Joseph treats Mary is with such great care and love, even when he assumes he's been wronged. Right? Because he could have made a big deal out of this. The girl I'm engaged to is pregnant. 
He could have made a big deal and made sure everyone knew. Made sure everyone knew that, that the scandal, the shame, it's all on her and it's not on, right? He could have done that. But the passage tells us that he was unwilling to put her to shame. That is beautiful. He was unwilling to put her to shame. That is honorable. And I have to tell you, when I read that, that is very, very convicting. Because I imagine that you're a lot like me. That when we've been wronged, we want everyone to know that we've been wronged. And why we've been wronged. And who wronged us. Little whispers. Little finger pointing. That the shame lies with them, not with me. But that's not what Joseph did, did he? And the passage says that he is honorable. Right? What, what a man of character and of virtue. He was unwilling to put her to shame. He was going to just divorce her quietly. And yet he was still going to divorce her. Because a virgin conception does sound crazy. And I imagine that maybe there are some of you here this morning who, as we read this passage, you think, yeah, that is crazy. About a year ago, um, uh, op-ed writer for the New York Times, Nicholas Kristof, he did a series of interviews with various Christians, um, well-known Christians, about Christianity. And one of his interviews he did with uh, William Lane Craig, William Lane Craig is a philosopher, philosophy teacher at Talbot School of Theology in Houston Baptist University. And so they do this interview, this back and forth, and he published in the New York Times. And in this one, the title of the, uh, of the interview was, Professor, Was Jesus Really Born to a Virgin? Okay, now Christoph's not a believer. And so he begins the interview like this. He says, I must confess that for all my admiration for Jesus... I'm skeptical about some of the narrative we've inherited. Are you actually confident that Jesus was born to a virgin? It's a very honest question. And so Christoph asks this of William Lane Craig, who's a believer. And Craig responds this way. He says, when I was a non-Christian, I used to struggle with this too. But then it occurred to me that for a God who could create the entire universe... Making a woman pregnant wasn't that big of a deal. Given the existence of a creator and designer of the universe, for which we have good evidence, an occasional miracle is child's play. Historically speaking, the story of Jesus' virginal conception is independently attested by Matthew and Luke and is utterly unlike anything in pagan mythology or Judaism. So what's the problem? What a wonderful response. And do you hear what he's saying? That if there is a God, and God is the creator of all things, he is the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that they contain. If God is the one who hung the stars in the sky, and he is the one who, who populated the earth with, with animals and with fish and with birds, and if he is the one who, who knows about outer space and all of its realms, and he understands black holes, and he put them, if he has done all these things, what's a little miracle? A woman getting pregnant? A virgin getting pregnant? Like, like you're going to say that that's out of the possibility of this God? What a beautiful response. 
William Lane Craig was basically saying what the angel said to Joseph. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus' incarnation is showing Joseph and is showing us that with God, all things are possible. And that's exactly what the angel said in Luke chapter 1 when he came and he spoke to Mary. And at the end of his telling Mary that she would be pregnant, he said, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. A virgin birth, conception by the Holy Spirit, I mean, nothing is impossible with God. Friends, if Jesus took on flesh and he came near to his people through this miraculous conception, if that's all that God had done, that would be reason enough to stand in awe of him, wouldn't it? That would be reason enough to stand amazed. But God does even more. You see, Jesus miraculously came near to his people in order to save. That's what he does. We're told in verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So last week, we heard about the importance of the word Christ, that name Christ. But this week, Matthew focuses our attention on the name Jesus. And Jesus is just the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. And Joshua would have meant in the Hebrew, Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh saves. God saves. That salvation comes from God the Father. And in the first century, uh, in the first century this name Jesus was very popular. People named their sons Jesus all the time. It was one of the most popular names to be given. And so every single time that name was placed upon a child, they would be reminded that it is God who saves. It is the one that they are putting their hope in that will one day bring salvation. And so every time a mother would call out to her son, Jesus, come back. (laughs) Jesus, don't run out into the street, right? Jesus, obey your mom, right? They were saying, God is the one who saves. That name would remind them again and again of where they had placed their hope. But what the angel is telling us is that this child who would bear the name Jesus isn't like those other kids. Because he is not the one who simply has hope of a salvation to come. He is salvation itself. Salvation will come only through him. You see, Jesus isn't just the man born to be the king, but he is the king who has come to save, to save us from our sins. Friends, we can never forget that. We can never forget that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, and he took on flesh to be God with us so that we would be saved. So that salvation would come. He didn't come just to show the miraculous power of God. He came to save us from our sins, to forgive our sins. Like, don't miss that. When we sing of his coming, when we cry out and we rejoice at his coming, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. When we sing that and we say those things, the reason we sing them and say them is because the Savior has come. Because if Jesus hadn't come, there would be no cause for singing. There would be no rejoicing. We wouldn't need to celebrate because we'd still be dead in our sins. But the good news of his incarnation is that he did come. And he came to save. 
The Savior has been born. So what do we do with that? What do we do? Well, no doubt we stand in awe of all that he has done. Right? We are amazed at Jesus' coming, but, but that amazement, that awe, it should manifest itself in obedience because that's what God calls us to. In light of the incarnation, God calls us to obedience, and that's what we see with Joseph. In verse 24, after the angel revealed to Joseph what, he had take, what would take place with Mary, who the son would be, the angel says, or excuse me, we're told that Joseph woke from sleep, and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, at first glance, this might not seem like a big deal. I mean, an angel appeared to him and told him to go do this, right? I mean, if an angel appeared to us, right, we, we would probably go do it after we realized it wasn't just some indigestion, right? Like, like if an angel told us to go do something, to go obey, we would probably get up and do it, or at least we'd like to think we would. Though we even know that there are accounts in Scripture where they didn't quite obey so quickly. But regardless, we would think, oh yeah, sure, we would do that. But think about the courage it would have taken Joseph to obey. Think about the courage it would have taken him because, because of the neighbors. The neighbors who would have seen Mary walking around before she was married, pregnant, holding her belly, you know, complaining about a sore back. I mean, the, the neighbors who would have seen her, I mean, do you think that they believed that she was conceived by the Holy Spirit? Maybe eventually, but initially? Of course not. And so Mary and Joseph, they, they would have faced scorn and ridicule and whispers. Right? I mean, we know, that, we know that they did face this because in John chapter 6, when Jesus called himself the bread of life, do you remember what the people did? We're told that the people grumbled at him, and what did they say? They said, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? You can hear the scorn in it. Oh, we know all about this Jesus guy. We know about the scandal that ensued. We know about the shame that he placed on his, right? We, we know all about Mary and Joseph. We know that his mom and dad, they, well, something happened. And surely this is what Joseph would have heard when he went to the market. He would have heard whispers. And, and surely when he walked down the street, people would have pointed and said, that's that guy. And yet Joseph refused to be controlled by the fear of the whispers that would come. The whispers of scandal. Instead, he gave up his plan to divorce his betrothed and he took Mary to be his wife and adopted Jesus as his son. And in so doing, he obeyed by faith. He obeyed by faith. And friends, that's what Christ's incarnation calls us to. There are countless things that the Bible calls us to do. Countless ways that God has called us to obey. He talks about our tongues and our, our words and our actions and our thoughts and the way in which we go about raising our kids and our families. And our, there are many, many ways, but, but what is consistent about all of them is that we obey with faith. We obey with faith that what God calls us to is better than the alternative. We obey with faith because what God calls us to is the way we were intended to live. We obey with faith because it is right and good 
And God loves us and wants us to live as he intended us to live. And so, friends, it means, it means that we're going to be people who, though the world might ridicule because we believe in something crazy like a virgin conception. It means that, that we are going to be a people who are going to obey even when there may be whispers because we believe that God came near and that salvation comes through a carpenter's son. That we would be a people that, that would obey, that we would be so overcome with awe and wonder and amazement at what God has done that we can't help but obey him with faith. As Jesus said, that we would allow our light to shine before others, that they may see our good deeds and give glory to our Father, that that is how we would live. Because Christ has come. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask that you would give us eyes of faith and that you fulfill our hearts with hope at all that you have done. That you would help us to, to believe and to be awed and to be amazed at what you have done so that in every part of our lives, in every single way, that we would obey you, we would honor you, we would follow you. So we pray that you would help us again today. Allow us to see the beauty of this familiar story. Allow us to be amazed at the coming of our Lord Jesus so that in everything that we say and do, in everything that we, every way that we act, with all of our heart, soul, strength, and might, we would love you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. And God's people said, Amen. I'll invite the ushers to come forward and we'll take this morning's tithes and offerings.